Psalm 31 is where we're going to be today. I like Psalm 31 because David is all over the place. His heart, the way I kind of picture it, is like a dryer, okay? Uh, his feelings and his emotions are on tumble, dry, high heat, like clothes tumbling in a dryer. David is full of confidence one minute, and then he's stressed, and then he's full of faith, and then he's begging God to intervene, and then he's rejoicing, and then he's pacing the floor, and then he's trusting the Lord, and then he's sweating bullets, and so on and so on. So basically kind of like my life. And I assume just like yours. So I like Psalm 31, and I like David because they are like me. Up, down, here, there, just all over the place, tumble dry, high heat. I think God put Psalm 31 in the Bible for people whose hearts are sometimes like a dryer. And if that sounds like you, then let me introduce you to Psalm 31. There's not any real structure in this psalm. As I said, David's all over the place. There's praise, trust, Petition, then sorrow, then rejoicing, then sadness, then faith, then distress, then confidence, rinse and repeat. So there's no use looking for a particular theme here or a structure. It's kind of like trying to pin down mercury, if you've ever tried to do that. It just keeps moving and it won't be pinned down. And David won't be pinned down by some preaching outline that some preacher comes up with. But we need a big idea today. That kind of encapsulates the verses that we're going to be looking at in Psalm 31. So here's my best shot at it. Connect your cares with God's character. Connect your cares with God's character. When your heart is like a dryer and your emotions and feelings are tumbling on high heat over and over, then connect the cares of your heart with God's character, what you know about him, who he is, what he's like. That's David in Psalm 31. He connects his cares, the things that are weighing down his heart, with what he knows about God, with his character. His problems get paired up with God's promises. So we're just going to look at the first 13 verses today, and we'll finish it next week. And we can do that. We can chop Psalm 31 up because David is all over the place anyway, and I think he would be okay with it. So Psalm 31, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Yahweh, faithful God. So did you catch the tone there? David is confident And yet he's a little stressed. He's trusting, but he's still desperate. And David is mixing his problems with God's promises in prayer. 
He's praying and he's asking Yahweh to intervene in his life. And then he says that he believes that Yahweh will intervene in his life and do that very thing. So he says, in you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. Be a rock of refuge, for you are my rock, for you are my refuge. So David says, I take refuge in you, but be my rock of refuge. In fact, you are my rock, you are my refuge. And so there's trust, because David says, in you I take refuge. There's desperation at the same time. Be my rock of refuge. And then there's confidence. You are my refuge. You can't miss that David doesn't play by any rules when he prays. He doesn't follow any acronyms like acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. He doesn't go by any bullet points. He doesn't go by any formulas. He just prays and pours his heart out, and whatever comes out, comes out. He just starts talking to God while mixing in what he knows of God. He just starts talking to God, and he just starts mixing in to his prayers what he already knows about God. It just all gets mixed together. I take refuge in you. Deliver me, rescue me, be a rock of refuge for me, save me. You are my rock, you are my refuge. David is desperate and sweating a little bit, but he's still full of faith. You can be that way, you know. Is that not the Christian life sometimes? Absolutely desperate for Jesus to rescue you, for Jesus to intervene in your life, to answer your prayers, maybe even sweating some bullets, and yet, also full of faith. It is one of the weird paradoxes of discipleship. You can be absolutely full of confidence that Jesus will intervene, but you can still chew your fingernails a little bit because you don't know when and you don't know how he will intervene. But what gives David this confidence is Yahweh's name. He says in verse 3, and For your name's sake, you lead and guide me. When you see God's name being mentioned in the Old Testament, it's referring to his nature, his character, who he is, or we might say how he rolls. In other words, God has a history of doing things like delivering his people out of trouble. When you see God's name being mentioned in the Old Testament, attached to that idea is the idea of God's history, what he's like, how he acts, what he does for his people. In other words, it's his reputation, his glory. He has a reputation of being a faithful God. So what David is asking God to do here is what God always does. He wants Yahweh to do what is in harmony with his nature, what is in harmony with his character, what is in harmony with his glory. David is not asking the Lord to do something that he's not familiar with. He's not asking Yahweh to do something that Yahweh has never heard of. Like, hmm, I've never even thought of that. David is asking the Lord to just be who he is and just do what he always does. In other words, David is saying, just be. Be you, Lord. You do you for me. That's not a bad prayer to pray, by the way. 
Whatever trouble you are experiencing, just cry out, just be you, Lord. Just be who you are in this situation. You do you for me. So to summarize verses 1 through 5, David is basically saying, just be who you are, Yahweh. But be who you are. Be who you are in my life right now at this moment. Because I'm desperate. I know you are a rock of refuge. But be that rock of refuge for me right now because I'm dying. Code blue on floor number three. Rescue me and rescue me fast, my faithful God. Rescue me because you are faithful. But there's something else to notice in verse 3 when David says, and for your name's sake you lead and guide me. David uses what's called the imperfect verbal form in Hebrew. David believes that God will do these things in the future. That means he expects God expects that God will lead and guide and rescue him. So there's expectancy in this prayer where David's all over the place like a dryer. There's expectancy, there's anticipation because of God's name, because of who God is, because of what David knows about Yahweh. David is expecting and anticipating that God will intervene in his life, will lead him, will guide him through the trouble that he's in right now because of what David knows of God's character. So even though our hearts sometimes, all times, we'd probably say, right? Even though our hearts sometimes, all times, or like a tumbling dryer on high heat, Psalm 31 is impressing on us to actually expect wild and crazy things from God. Wild and crazy answers to our prayers. And here's why. Because of who we know our God to be. Verse 3 is telling us to stick our necks out and trust Jesus, no matter what we see with our eyes, no matter what we feel in our hearts, and believe that Jesus will lead and guide us through whatever path he has us on right now. So let's do this as a church family, okay? Let's start talking about and anticipating and expecting God to come through for us as a church and each of us individually as disciples in our own families to come through for us in wild and crazy ways. I mean, you look at God's history through the Old Testament, he's like, I can part a sea and you can cross on dry land. I can make an axe head float in water. I mean, he can do these things, right? Those passages are, are wooing us, calling out to us saying, just believe in Jesus. He can do crazy, wild things. Those stories, by the way, are not reserved for kids' ministry. Sunday morning classes, right? It's where we, David and Goliath, Jonah and the well, all these things where it's like, well, we teach the kids these really wild and crazy things about Jesus. But, I mean, us as adults, I mean, we're a little more refined and we know better than that, don't we? Those stories are in the Bible for us. And they're calling out to us, saying, this is your God. Will you believe him? Let's do this as a church. Let's start talking about and anticipating and expecting God to come through for us in wild and crazy ways. I mean, why not? What's the alternative? We could mope 
We could be full of despair. We could listen to the devil's lies and accusations. We could worry. We could stress. We could even chew our fingernails down until they bleed. Or we can expect Jesus to intervene and be who he is. We can anticipate him intervening because we believe his word, because we believe his promises, and because we believe that, as David says here, he is the faithful God. We can say with a smile on our faces, I wonder what God is going to do in this situation. It, I wonder what God, how he's going to show up. I mean, this is a big mess. When Jesus shows up, things happen. I wonder how Jesus, what's he going to do when he shows up? It's rather exciting to think what he might do. Maybe you need to say that with like an accent or something. It's rather exciting to think what he might do. Maybe that helps you. So let's become a church that expects God to respond to our prayers with wild and crazy answers. Let's start talking about and anticipating and expecting God to come through for us. That's better than fear, worry, sleepless nights. It's better than moping, being paralyzed by our fears. After all, who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with, as David says in verse 5, O Yahweh, faithful God. We're dealing with the faithful God. What if we focused on that as a church, as disciples, when issues came up in our families and neighborhoods and workplaces? What if we reflected on his faithfulness? Imagine being a church where instead of stressing out, imagine being a disciple who instead of stressing out, started stressing the wild and crazy faithfulness of God so that the children who grow up here at Grace and eventually leave for college or wherever they go in the world, they leave here and they have part of their spiritual DNA, they have thoughts like this. So we want to talk about and anticipate and stress, God will answer your prayers. Trust him. He does wild and crazy things. What if the kids leave here, make it through all of our ministries, children, youth, college, and go off into the world, and what if this is a part of their DNA at their core? They think thoughts like this. Thoughts like, God is faithful. Psalm 31.5 is screaming that at me. And he's good. And he keeps covenant. He's the faithful God. And I can trust him with this situation that I'm facing. I can pour my heart out to him because he cares for me. And I can trust and expect and anticipate him coming through for me in wild and crazy and imaginative ways. So I'm going to cast my cares on him because he cares for me. And I'll just rest now and wait to see how he's going to blow my mind with his answers. Who doesn't want their kids to learn to pray with confidence like that? Who doesn't want that for their kids when they leave home? Who doesn't want that for their kids when they face what they will face in this world? And the way our culture is going, man, what our kids are going to face. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that for themselves? Me, I do. Let's become a church where that kind of talk is a part of our discipleship, where we focus on the character of God, where we connect our cares with his character, 
where we talk about his covenant-keeping nature, how he's faithful to his promises, how he is faithful to his fickle people. Let's talk about how he's sovereign, all-knowing, and all-powerful, and then let's believe it. I mean, really believe it. Like where you like defy Satan and you're like, you know what? No, I know Jesus. And yeah, this, I'm in a mess. I'm in a pickle. This is a terrible situation to be in. But I know Jesus. So I defy you, Satan. And I believe I'm going to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And when we create and cultivate this kind of church culture, when we talk about what God might do, how he's faithful, how he will lead and guide us when we create a culture of expectancy and anticipation instead of negativity, then we will strengthen our spiritual muscles so that we as a church family will learn to trust Jesus. Now, yes, trusting Jesus is hard. No one is denying that. I'm not saying that this comes easy for me or for anyone because it doesn't. It's not easy for any of us. Trusting Jesus is hard because we are fickle sinners, right? The problem is he's trustworthy. The problem is on our end. It's hard to relinquish control, the control we think we have, and trust God because we want him to respond immediately and we want him to respond in the way that we want him to respond. So trusting Jesus is hard. Ray Ortland says, trusting God is not comfortable. It doesn't belong in a Hallmark card picture. A colorful valley, a quaint village, a church steeple with a sentimental slogan. Trusting God can be extremely uncomfortable, even painful. You may be going through hell right now. You may be bewildered, gasping, gasping, frightened. But that doesn't mean you aren't trusting God. It might mean you are trusting God. There was something about coming to the end of ourselves and our own strength and wisdom. That's when our hearts finally crack open and the love of God pours in. When we have nothing left of, nothing of our own left, when nothing will suffice but that which is directly and immediately of God, that's when God alone is our sufficiency and we find him to be so. He's worth the wait. You may have come into church today bewildered, scratching your head, confused as to what God is up to, gasping, frightened, etc. But that doesn't mean that you aren't trusting God. It might mean that you are trusting him. And that's David in Psalm 31. Bewildered, but trusting. Confused, but expectant. Frightened, but full of hope. Scratching his head, but anticipating Yahweh to come through for him. Basically, David in Psalm 31 is basic discipleship. I mean, this is discipleship. What's discipleship like? Psalm 31 is a great place to go and see. There's not like a Hallmark card at all. There's no sentimental slogans, no quaint villages, no church steeples. No colorful valleys. The path of discipleship described by David in Psalm 31 is real and raw, which means that all the paths of Yahweh that he leads us on will most likely feel like Psalm 31. But there's hope and expectation and anticipation 
because of who God is. And who is God? David said he's the faithful God. Who is this Psalm 31 God that we're dealing with? David also calls Yahweh his refuge, his fortress, his rock. The Hebrew word for rock that David uses is the word for a crag or a cliff. So David's thinking of this cave with an opening that he can run safely into. He's he's, uh, thinking about like this sliver in a rock that he can hide in, hide away from his enemies, unable to be detected, safe and secure from any traps set by his enemies. And that's why David can commit his entire life into God's hands. Because he's the faithful God. He's his rock, his refuge, his fortress. That's what David means when he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. David is saying, I can trust you with my whole life. All of it. I place all of my life, all of my problems, all of my worries, all of all of it into your hands. If you ask David for advice today, He'd probably tell you, I really don't need to hear the details of what's going on in your life. Just let me tell you this. Connect your cares with God's character. Take all that's going on in your heart and connect it with the heart of God. Take all your cares and worries and troubles that you know so well because you rehearse them over and over. Take all of those things and connect them with what you know about Jesus. You know a lot of things about your situation because you're thinking about them. You're mulling. You're meditating. You know everything that's going on in your heart. Take all of that and connect it with what you know about Jesus. His character. His promises. His ways. How he rolls. How does Jesus roll? You know. Connect whatever's in your heart with how he rolls. And that's exactly what David does next. He's got some frenemies within the nation of Israel who are giving him grief. And he's got a frenemy in his own heart too. Look at verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in Yahweh. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Basically, David's life is a mess. It feels like a broken piece of pottery. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know, I just feel broken. I feel like my life Marriage, family, kids, job, school, friends, everything. I just feel like a broken piece of pottery that can't be put back together. You are exactly who Jesus is looking for. You are exactly who Jesus says, when I show up, my promises can begin to put your life back together again. That's David here. I'm just a broken piece of pottery. There are people in Israel who are worshiping idols. That's bothering David. He's afflicted, he's distressed, his eyes are bloodshot from weeping. His soul is tired. 
Do you know that feeling where not only your body aches from what you're going through, like David here, but where your soul hurts? Your soul aches. Have you ever been there before? Where it's like, man, my spirit, my soul just hurts. It aches. David says he feels his suffering in years. Have you ever felt your suffering in years? Not for a few moments or a few weeks, but for years? He says his life is spent in sorrow. For years, he's just been sighing, just like, is it ever going to end? Will it ever just be like one good day? And he says his body is breaking down. He's weak. He's exhausted. He's got all these enemies on the outside giving him grief, but he also has an enemy within, namely sin. He says the sin in his heart, the iniquity has sapped his strength. His body is wasting away because of his sin. His enemies, he's getting death threats from his enemies. They're slandering him on Facebook. And then even some of his friends are like, have you seen David lately? Yikes. He's struggling. That dude is broken. Death is ringing his doorbell. But in spite of all that, David says in verse 6, and he'll say it again in verse 14. We'll look at it next week. But he says, but I trust in the Lord. I trust in Yahweh. I'm a broken piece of pottery. But I trust in Yahweh. And he can say that because he knows God's character. David can actually rejoice and be glad, not in his circumstances as if they are good. He can be a broken piece of pottery and rejoice and be glad, not because of his circumstances, but he can do it because of God's love. David rejoices in God's love for him, and he rejoices because of who God has been for him in the past. God has been faithful to him, he says. God saw his affliction, knew the distress of his soul. God did not deliver him into the hands of his enemies. God set his feet in a broad, safe place. So understand this. Yahweh is a faithful God who delivers his people. But that doesn't make his people immune from trouble. Jesus is a faithful God who delivers his people from trouble. But that doesn't make his people immune from trouble. We know Jesus to be the faithful God because he delivers us out of troubles that we have to go through. He doesn't deliver us from an easy life. He delivers us from the suffering and the trouble that we have to go through in this broken, fallen world. In Psalm 31, just, it's just laying it out there. It's making that very clear. It's like, hey, you guys understand, we live in a fallen, broken world, and you may feel like a broken piece of pottery. And just because you know Jesus doesn't mean you are immune from feeling like a broken piece of pottery. We are not immune from troubles just because we know and love Jesus. In fact, Jesus will often let us go through something for quite a while before he intervenes. Jesus is notorious for waiting until the last minute. When all the odds are stacked against us, when it seems like there's no hope, there's no way out, when we are the clear underdog, before he intervenes, and delivers. 
commenting along these lines about how God picked a quote-unquote unfortunate time for Israel to cross the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. It was, the river was, uh, Jordan River was at flood stage. It's like, you're going to have them cross then? Why not during a drought? So it seems unfortunate, the timing from man's perspective. Here's what Ralph Davis says about that, and that's kind of how God rolls. He says, why does the God of the Bible insist on fording the river at this most unpropitious time? I am not sure, but this is a marked tendency in his ways. Yahweh delights to show his might in the face of our utter helplessness, apparently so that we cannot help seeing that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. There is a strangeness about Yahweh's method, and yet there is a method in his madness. Perhaps he brings us into impossible circumstances, situations so bleak and hopeless for the very purpose of impressing upon us that if we make it through, if we endure it, if we are not overwhelmed and washed away, it will be only because of his grace and power. Is this his way of teaching us our own inability and helplessness in order that we may realize that our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth? I think that's why David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, in verse 9. Because he knows that it's only by God's grace that he's going to make it through this ordeal. David is so low that he knows that if he makes it out alive, it will all be due to God's grace and therefore God will get all the glory. And he's seen Yahweh do this for him before. David has been in impossible circumstances and situations so bleak, so hopeless, and he's seen the Lord intervene and deliver. And it's this stuff Yahweh did for me yesterday business that causes David to rejoice and be glad as he's going through what he's suffering now. He's going through hell. His heart is like a dryer all over the place, but he thinks back, I remember another time when my heart was like this, and Yahweh came through for me. So even though life is, I'm just a broken piece of pottery right now, I know that Yahweh will come through because I can look back. The stuff that Yahweh did for me yesterday business is what's giving me hope, and I can rejoice and be glad right now as I go through what I'm suffering. He has remembered that he and Yahweh have history They have history together. And it's this recollection of the past, the past ways of Yahweh, that have caused David to connect his current cares with the character of his God. So David is just giving us vintage Jesus in Psalm 31. He's reminding us that Jesus can't seem to look away from our distress and our problems and our misery. He's reminding us that Jesus doesn't mind rolling up his sleeves and getting involved in the muck and mire of our lives. I mean, what king does that? What king gets involved in the affairs of some lowly peasants? Ours does. King Jesus. Maybe you're here today and thinking that God doesn't care about what's going on in your life today. Maybe you think he hasn't noticed Well, you need to let David grab you by the scruff of the neck this morning. And you need to let David rub your face into verses 7 and 8. Because right now, David says to you, Oh, you think God doesn't care about you? 
You think he's oblivious to your problems? Well, come here, buddy boy. I'm going to rub your nose in these words, and you can't come up for air until you're ready to say like me, I will rejoice and be glad. So right now, let David grab you by the scruff of the neck and rub your face into verses 7 and 8. Look there again. He says, you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. When you come up for air finally, rejoicing and full of gladness, because this is true for you, Christian, guess what's on your face? These words, you have seen, you have known, you have not delivered me into, you have set my feet. Jesus has done that for you hundreds, if not thousands of times in your life. He's done all of that for you thousands of times in your life. Think about it. He sees you and all that you're suffering. He knows everything that is happening in your life. He has not handed you over. You're still here. You may be a broken piece of pottery. Like, you got to put me in a bag if you're going to take me somewhere because there's too many pieces. But he has not handed you over. He has set your feet on a sturdy place. And you can rejoice and be glad because this is vintage Jesus just doing what vintage Jesus does. He sees you. He knows you. He hasn't delivered you over. He has set your feet in a broad place. And he has done that for you. He has done that for me thousands of times in our life. How can we not trust him? This is who Jesus is. He's the I see you. I know you. I will deliver you. I will make you secure God of Psalm 31. How do you respond to a God like this? You connect your cares with his character. You take what's happening in your life and you connect it with what you know about Jesus. And then you turn it into prayer. And then you just mix it all up like it's in a dryer. There's praise one minute. Then you move to trust in your prayer and then petition then sorrow and then rejoicing and then sadness and then faith and then distress and then confidence and rinse and repeat. That's prayer. That's prayer that doesn't belong on a Hallmark card. Listen, you can trust Jesus today just like David. Why? Because of his character, his name, his reputation, because he is the faithful God who makes and keeps his promises. And you can trust his promises as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. You probably know that Jesus quoted part of verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit on the cross as he breathed his last breath. By quoting Psalm 31, I think Jesus was, one, committing his human spirit to God as his physical body would soon be laid in the grave and his spirit would ascend to his Father. But two, I think Jesus is committing his perfect life of obeying uh, God into God's hands. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. He fully obeyed God's law on our behalf, and he presents that life of obedience to his Father as he breathes his last breath. He's saying, I have obeyed perfectly for them. I have never sinned for them. 
so that you would take my perfect life and give it to them and I'll take their sin on the cross. And it's because of his perfect life, his righteousness, that we can stand in God's presence forgiven of our sins. It's because of his sacrifice, his substitutionary death, that we are justified by faith. We're not justified by faith because since January we've been faithful with our Bible reading. We're justified by faith because of his works, not our own. It's how we can be forgiven. We simply look to Jesus, our substitute. We look to him by faith, and we know that we can be declared righteous and be perfect in God's eyes. In his book, Look to the Rock, Alec Motier describes what it was like for an Old Testament worshiper, even like David, what it was like for them to trust in Yahweh's promises. And so he says this, A father has just returned from presenting his sin offering as prescribed in Leviticus 4. And his family says, why did you go to the temple today? He answers, I wanted to make a sin offering because I needed the Lord's forgiveness. And have you been forgiven? Oh, yes. How do you know? Because I saw the goat die in my place. But how do you know that it was dying in your place? Because I laid my hand on its head and appointed it to be my substitute. Well, why was it your substitute? Well, this is what the Lord told us to do. He has taught us that he wants us to offer a sacrifice for sin and that when we lay our hand on the animal's head, it becomes our substitute. But how do you really know that when the animal died, your sins were forgiven? And the father answers, Because the Lord promised. Because the Lord promised. That's why. This is why David trusts Yahweh. Because Yahweh has made promises to him. And it's why we can trust him and why we can trust his character. Because he is the faithful God. As we approach the table today. You may not want to come because of your sin. But that's what this table is for. It's for you to connect your sin with your substitute. See, the way of salvation is not like a picturesque Hallmark card. In fact, it doesn't belong in a Hallmark card picture with a colorful valley, a quaint village, a church steeple, and a sentimental slogan because the way of salvation is bloody. It's gory. It's brutal. It's the Son of God dying a very brutal death for our sins as our substitute in our place for and because of our sin. You may be here today thinking, but Pastor Benji, how do you really know that when Jesus died, your sins were forgiven? And let me tell you what, I got a lot of sins, okay? If you knew them all, you wouldn't be my friends, okay? You'd be like, I don't want to hang out with that guy. Have you seen that guy? Who? How do I know that I'm really forgiven? Answer, because the Lord promised. Because he made a promise to me in his word and he made a promise to you. If you come to his son by faith, he forgives you. If you turn from living for yourself and you commit your spirit, your life, and say, here, Jesus, you're my only hope. I come to you, then you can be forgiven today. I don't care what you've done. You can come today to Jesus and be forgiven.
be washed, be clean. Why? Because the Lord promised. What a beautiful sentence. Because the Lord promised. So turn to Jesus now if you haven't. Receive him by faith and you can be forgiven. And for those who are already in Christ, let me remind you, if you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, Christian, you are forgiven. I can tell you that. You are forgiven. And you are clean right now. You are washed. You are righteous. You are perfect in God's eyes. How can I tell you that today? Is it because I went to seminary? No. Is it because I'm a pastor? No. How can I tell you that today? Answer, because the Lord promised. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have promised in your word that you will not remember our sins. Now we know that you know them. You know them more than we do, Lord. But you don't remember them because of your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for doing what we could never do, Lord. For fully obeying God's law on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for never sinning. That is amazing. That is amazing, because all I know is sin in my heart. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for dying in our place, rising again, ascending to your Father where you are our high priest right now. We thank you that you've made promises to us. Help us to believe them. As we come to the table today, would you strengthen us with your grace to live for you, to love you. Jesus, renew our love for you. Lord, some of us, our hearts are cold. They're hardened. We're drifting. We know it's wrong, but God, we've just kind of dug our heels in. Would your Holy Spirit come and soften our hearts as we think about your love for us? Lord Jesus, you love us when we're rebellious and stubborn, telling you off and running away. Would you draw all of us back home today? And may we come knowing that like that younger son who wandered off, Lord, that you would welcome us and hug us and kick our, kiss our neck and throw a party for us, Lord. May we come back to you today. Renew our love for you today, Jesus. We need your spirit. We can't even do that ourselves. Renew our love for you. In your name we pray, amen. So when we come to the Lord's table, we do need to recognize that this is for people who are saying, you know what, I'm lost, I need a savior, I need a substitute, I can't be good enough, I'm a sinner. And if that's you and you're trusting in Christ alone, whether you're a member, regular attender, or first-time visitor, you are welcome here. If you're not trusting in Christ, this won't do anything for you. Stay in your seat and ask Jesus to open your eyes and have mercy. Just say, Christ, have mercy on me. Turn to him. But for those who are Christians, don't think you can't come here because of your sin. Don't think, I gotta like confess it all. Listen, we don't have enough time for you to confess it all, okay? We got another service to do. We'd be here till 
Jesus comes back for you to confess all your things. You come to this table knowing that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, and he meets you here. That's how it works. You come with sin, he comes with grace. You don't come saying, I'm all polished up. Jesus, he's like, "Mm, no, you're dirty. You come dirty, and he loves and he forgives you. So come, we're going to sing as we're singing. Come down the center aisles, go to the outside, hang on to the elements, and then we will take and eat and drink together. We're going to celebrate. This is a feast. We are all the younger brothers coming home to the table today, and we're going to eat and drink together, and it's going to be like the father has killed the fatted calf for us. We're going to have a party when we take and drink. So come, confess your sin. Confess it, flee from it, and come to the table and cry out to Jesus and find forgiveness.